Hello and welcome to another episode of our Brothers Creed podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences, and we explore the world around us. We are the Thomas Brothers and I'm Jared. And I'm Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about the infamous ATF. So the ATF, also known as Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms Division. Or BATF, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms. The Bureau, right? Yeah. It's uh, we'll, we'll go into a little bit more detail, but basically it's part of the DOJ or the Department of Justice. And they uh, have had quite a few situations in the past, uh, let's say, I don't know, even 30 years. Yeah. Uh some issues, right? Some uh, some situations that they were supposed to handle that maybe they didn't handle quite correctly, <laughs> to say the to say it uh, at the very least. Yeah, and so uh, I'm sure you guys have probably heard of these stories. We're going to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, obviously, we could have full episodes on some of these stories, but um, we're going to talk about some of the the failures that the ATF uh, ran into as well as um, some of kind of the potential uh, laws uh, as related to uh, mostly firearms that the ATF has come out with recently and some of their ideals that are, uh, let's say, questionable. So it's going to be a really informational episode. Uh, it's really fun to kind of dig into some of these some of these things, some interesting stories. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm thinking I'm back. Most valuable commodity I know of is information. And that, my friends, is called integrity. That's called courage. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of. Either you're somebody or you're nobody. You're not the devil. You're practice. So as we mentioned before, the ATF, uh, the 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 actual long name is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. They are a, a federal law enforcement agency, not not so unlike the FBI or the CIA, or, or the CIA, very similar. Uh, they are responsible for enforcing federal laws related to firearms explosives and arson um like we mentioned before they're part of the department of justice and are headquartered in washington dc yeah, interestingly enough though uh they were moved from the department of treasury to the department of justice in 2002 interesting so they're kind of like the red-headed stepchild that is like really super annoying and everybody hates and you just nobody they just feed them scraps uh as far as like the uh, law enforcement agencies of the government because uh, like they don't really have a place. They're kind of over, they're underfunded. Well, some would say they're underfunded. I would say no funding and canceling the whole thing is probably what we should do. Uh, but they, um, I think historically they've had kind of uh, less training than some of the other agencies. Yeah. And as you'll see in both of these stories, they go up, to, they go into a situation, totally F it up. Uh, and then the FBI or, or federal marshals or something like that has to come in and try to do better. But the FBI uh, uh, many times doesn't do any better either. <laughs> yeah. So the ATF's mission is to 
protect the public from violent crimes, particularly crimes that are involving the illegal use of firearms and explosives. Uh, They work to prevent terrorism and enforce federal criminal laws related to uh, trafficking trafficking of firearms, uh, regulation of firearms, and explosive industries in the United States as well. Uh, They also uh, work to reduce the impact of violent crime on communities by working with other federal, local, state uh, law enforcement agencies like we talked about. So Hmm. that's just a little bit about the ATF, who they are, what they do, what their mission is. Uh, And so we'll kind of get into some different stories of did they overstep their boundaries or are they trying to, you know, sometimes when someone tries to try so hard to prove themselves that it's just like, <laughs> the, it's those, just like, you know, ha- face yeah. palm. It's just like, oh my gosh. Those know, people are like, called tryhards. Uh, yeah. And dude, this, these stories are, I, I was talking to a guy at work today. He was born in, in 1990. And so, you know, when I talked to him, uh, it's funny. He, he may listen to this episode, but he, I want to talk to him. I'm like, have you seen this movie? Have you seen Dumb and Dumber? Have you seen you know, Tommy Boy? And he's like, those are before I was born, man. I've never seen those movies. And I'm like, bro. And oh, I, asked, I was like, I was like, dude, have you, I was like, have you seen, I was like, have you heard about Ruby Ridge? Uh, and he was like, no. So I think we're, we're, we're living in a generation. Well, the younger generation may not know anything about Ruby Ridge or Waco. Uh, and what are some of the things that happened there? And I think this is stuff is stuff that you should not forget about. Uh, these are two major stories. Ethan and I are going to talk about today. Major instances where the, if ATF totally screwed up uh, and way overstepped their bounds, uh, almost to a tyrannical extent uh, in many of these cases. Uh, there's other ones that uh, I think Ethan's mentioned before in a podcast, Fast and the Furious. Uh, that was a major recent scandal in the 2000s during the Obama administration. Uh, that Well, it couldn't have been during the Obama administration because Obama said that when he left office, he didn't have any major scandals. So it, it was in 2009 to 2011. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> he said there was no major scandals, but there definitely were. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, during that era. And, uh, but th- that's not the main dis- part of the discussion. The main part of the discussion today is we're going to talk about Ruby Ridge and Waco. We could talk probably for, we could do a whole season on, on both of these. Like, heck I could, we could do a two episode, f- you know, thing on just Ruby Ridge itself. Uh, Cause there's so much here. Uh, but I'll talk about this one first because this one actually happened first, right, Ethan? Yeah, yeah. I think Ruby Ridge happened first. So I'll talk about this one first. So uh, this one is is pretty insane. Uh, after all this went down, there was a congressional hearing and in depth review of this. I mean, there's a 500 page document that I was reading through, digging through all these information, what the congressional hearing committee said about it, what they said their recommendations were. So, 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 so much. So I'm going to give you a real high-level view. I've, listened, I've watched some videos with this guy's daughter, with this guy himself, uh, explaining what, what happened. So let me give you a little bit of background. So there's a guy named Randy Weaver. Randy Weaver, he was born in 1948. He was one of four children. He's a, a real religious guy, kind of a, kind of a fundamentalist. And he was, in 1968, at the age of 20, he joined the United States Army. During the height of the Vietnam War, he became a, a Green Beret, Special Forces, in the U.S. Army. After he came back from the Army, he married his sweetheart uh, and wife, 
Vicki Jordanson in 1971. She's kind of a firecracker of a lady, as you'll see. He got a job at the John Deere tractor factory, and his wife was a secretary and homemaker. Uh, During the first part of their marriage, they became concerned with kind of the state of things in the country. I mean, if you Vietnam era, late 60s, everything was really hectic. There was a lot of social discord. So he says, you know what, honey? Let's move. Let's sell all of our stuff and move to the mountains somewhere in Idaho. Get off grid. So what they did is they sold their truck. And they bought a piece of 20 acres of land in Idaho Boundary County, Woodlands, for about $500 an acre, which is pretty cheap. 20, 20 acres for 500 bucks an acre, that's awesome. But it was raw land, nothing there. He actually, in a newspaper article before he left, he said he wanted to go out and live in the woods to survive, quote, the Great Tribulation. So some of this was religiously motivated. As a former Green Beret, he said he was going to set up this property so that he could defend it when the Great Tribulation happened, and he kind of had built these kill zones and stuff like that. Lots of stuff that you see today on these shows like Preppers, you know, these Doomsday Preppers. I've seen so many shows where they're like, funnel yeah. the driveway into a kill zone, and then they'll practice with their kids, you know, shooting someone coming through the kill zone. So stuff that today is pretty commonplace. I mean, he was just trying to protect his property, uh, and that's what he was kind of setting up. So he's a Green Beret, obviously trained individual. So he said he, him and his wife built this cabin out there, middle of nowhere. No plumbing, no running water, just, you know, they had well that they could crank up water from, and then they had no electricity. So it was just a cabin out in the woods. So the trouble with him started in 1985. Allegedly, someone brought to the attention uh, to the Secret Service, local authorities, and then later to the Secret Service, that Randy Weaver had made some threats against President Ronald Reagan, the Idaho governor, John Evans, and then certain law enforcement officials. So the Secret Service got involved, and they interviewed him, and they claimed that Randy said, I didn't. Randy said, I didn't say this. I didn't say those things. So that's not coming from me. Now, generally, this guy is kind of an anti-government person, but um, you know, he did just fight for the U.S. Army in Vietnam. So he says, you know, I'm, I'm not. I didn't say any of that or whatever. And the Secret Service is saying, hey, well, they concluded that this guy, you know, he's got lots of guns, probably unlimited ammo, quote unquote. That's what they said. Unlimited. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, and they made a connection between him and the this group that was up in the Idaho area called the Aryan Nation Group. And this happened in 1985. In 1985, in February of that year, Randy and Vicki Weaver filed a handwritten affidavit with the Boundary County clerks claiming that persons around the Deep Creek, Idaho area were conspiring to endanger the Weaver family and to precipitate an attack on the Randy Weaver's life. Uh, the affidavit alleges that Weaver accusers had made false statements about his connection with the Aryan nations and his ownership of illegal weapons, and that they were wrongfully alleged that he had threatened the president and the Pope. <laughs> of course, the Pope, you know. Uh, good luck getting past that bulletproof uh, golf cart, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Weavers also started stated that these falsehoods were designed to provoke the FBI into storming their home. Weaver expressed fear 
that he would be killed or arrested for assault of a federal officer if he tried to defend himself, and he gave legal official notice that he believes that he may have defended he may have to defend himself and his family from physical attacks on his life. That was sent to the county clerk in 1985. Watch what happens next. In 1986, the ATF was investigating a series of bombings in Quarter Lane, which is northern Idaho, and it was thought that the so-called Aryan Brother Aryan Nation was responsible for this. So enter FBI ATF and confidential informant Kenneth Fideli. So Kenneth Fideli, who's the confidential ATF informant, undercover, he goes to these conferences. Kind of he the ATF asked him, "Hey, go to these conferences and see if you can see anybody doing anything illegal." Okay? And so Fideli portrayed himself as a weapons dealer who created who catered to motorcycle gangs and so forth. So he's like, hey, man, I can procure you any weapons you want, you know, under the table, of course, kind of a thing. And he's supposed to be looking for any shaded activity. Now, there were allegations that he was being compensated, like on a commission basis, for anybody that he found out, quote unquote, or entrapped, which is what other people say. So what happened is that Fideli was introduced to Randy Weaver at one of these world conferences uh, that was held in uh locally there, I think, uh, and Fidelity later invited him to kind of on a gun deal, and Randy just kind of went along, but he didn't do anything. The next year, Randy was there with his wife and kids at this conference again, and Fidelity saw him again, and Randy expressed his struggle that he was going through. He says, you know, I need a job. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to, to make ends meet, and he also mentioned that he did not trust the Aryan Nation's leader and did not agree with what the, that group leader was doing. I uh, expressed this to that Randy, to the informant. And in 1988, you know, Randy was on hard times, man. He, he actually ran in the Republican primary for county sheriff uh, using the slogan, uh, get out of jail free. <laughs> and he was kind of an adamant against taxes. He, I would listen to a story from him and he said that he had a buddy that like Worked his whole life in the railroad industry in California. He owed $500 to the IRS in taxes. The guy said, I'm not paying that. So he moves to Idaho, buys a bunch of land. The guy's living life. And then the guy gets arrested. And then the IRS says, oh, now you owe us $60,000. And they auction off his whole estate and everything. So he's really against the IRS, right? He said he said that he was on the radio station multiple times. People will call and say, hey, why are you running for sheriff? He said, well, one... I don't want these federal agents coming around here. And two, I need a job because I'm poor. <laughs> and so that was kind of, didn't, didn't, was unsuccessful, though. He didn't actually get into the office there. But later in 1989, Weaver ran into the informant, uh, Fideli, again at one of these conferences. But this time he said, hey, how's the business going? And the Fideli says, business is great, man. Business is awesome. The good business is doing so great. You, uh, you want to make some money? And he's like, yeah, I uh, I can make some money. I, I need some money. And so... Praying on the week. He said, yeah, exactly. So Randy invited him to meet some of his some of his buddies. And the informant got Randy, basically, essentially, long story short, he got him to sell him two sawed-off shotguns. And, and then he, he had a wire on him, and he said, oh, where did you cut these shotguns? He's like, well, I was under a tree and just sawed off these shotguns. And the guy promised him, you know, several hundred dollars just to saw off two shotguns, you know, 
I think it was like a 12 and a half inch shotgun, just to saw off the things and give it to him. Which makes them, which makes them illegal. Which makes it illegal. So the section 568, 5681 of the title 26 of the United States code of criminalizes the possession of unregistered firearms and the altering of firearms by anyone not in the business of manufacturing firearms. So, Firearms includes shotguns that are barrels that are less than 16 inches. So by cutting that barrel less than 16 inches, automatically you became a criminal. And so what they did is the government ATF says, okay, we got this guy. So several months later, the ATF agents go up to his house and say, hey, we've got you. We knew that you sold those two sawed-off shotguns. Now you can either join us and give us information on the Aryan Nation or you can... Uh, we'll we'll arrest you. And he's basically like, first of all, I'm not that involved with the Aryan Nation anyway. And second of all, I'm not a snitch. So get lost, basically. And so they left. And they're like, oh, gosh. So what they did is uh, they actually did like a weird trick. They were like, oh, we got to get this guy away from his away from his property. We got to trick him. So the ATF actually posed as like stranded motorists on the side of the road. And so him and his wife stopped to help, like with the hood up and everything on a camper. Him and his wife said, oh, someone's stranded. They stopped, got out to help. And then when they got out to help, ATF agents came out of the back of the trailer. And the ones that were, you know, these supposed stranded tours were like, freeze, we got you. He's like, you dogs, you, know, you got, you tricked me or whatever. He actually tried to grab one of their guns, but, you know, they, they got him. And so they went and they arrested him. Uh, Weaver was arraigned on the weapons charges in January of 1991. He was told that his trial would commence on February 19th, 1991. Now, this is some important details here. Two weeks later, the the court clerk notified the parties that the trial date had been changed to February 20th. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. Probation Office sent Weaver a letter incorrectly referencing his trial date to March 20th, 1991. It was a typo, they said. Oops, sorry. After Weaver failed to appear for the trial on February 20th, the court issued a bench warrant for his arrest. The week later, on March 14th, a federal grand jury indicted Weaver for his failure to appear for trial. And then this was that. That is so. That is so skeezy. Oh yeah. Oh, it was a a typo, and they gave him the wrong date, so he didn't show up. And then they, boom, they have a warrant out for his arrest. Yep. So the you the 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 committee found that they said we found that the government especially the USAO or the US the attorney office was unnecessarily rigid in its approach to the issues created by this erroneous letter that the USAO improvidently sought an indictment before March 20th which was when the letter said that he had to be there in any way and that the US attorney's office is uh, erred in failing to inform the grand jury of the erroneous letter so the guy said, oh, my bad, it was a typo, you know. So stuff like this all along the way. So basically, when he got arrested, uh, he's, this is from his own mouth. He said, yeah, like my wife came and we had to I had post bond. And so I had to post my property up as a bond. And my wife was just like, he said, you know, I don't want to know if I want to do this. And his wife is just like, do it now. And so he's like, okay. So he, he goes up and they go up into the, their property and you know, they're getting all kinds of correspondence and his wife's like, you know what? I'm, and he's up there. He's saying, I'm scared that they're going to come up here and try to kill all of us. And his wife's like, we're not leaving this property because I don't want them to 
come after us. I don't want them to get you. We're not. We're, we're staying here as a family. So it's him, 16-year-old daughter, 14-year-old son, and then two daughters. From that point in 1991, 18 months later, he has another baby up at his property. He didn't come down from his property for 18 months. And then in August of 1992, the federal marshal, so from February of 91 to August of 92, the federal marshals have been doing this big plan, trying to figure out how to get up there, how to get them out, how to do all this stuff. And so there was, uh, I think, two federal marshals. I saw, I read two, but then somewhere else I read six. Anyway, they were in all camo. They were on his property, and they were trying to figure out, scope out the area, you know, see where the house cabin was and all this kind of stuff. So on that morning of the 21st of August, his dogs start barking like crazy. So him, Randy Weaver, his son Sammy, and another family friend uh, named Kevin, they all start running out after, what's going on running out after this thing? And the a gun battle ensued. And the 14-year-old Sammy Weaver got shot in the elbow, shot in the back, and he got killed. And a deputy marshal was killed uh, at that same time. And Kevin, the, who was the buddy of Randy Weaver that was up there, uh, he was actually, I believe his name was Kevin. Uh, he was actually the, said later that he was the one that shot that. Oh, excuse me. His name was Harris. Last name Harris, I think. Uh, he's the one that said he shot that marshal. And so, you know, that was bad news bears. So the next day, the FBI sends out their hostage rescue team up to the property and surround the entire property. And so there's snipers covering the whole area, and they were instructed, their rules of engagement, which have since been rewritten because of all this, their rules of engagement were, if you see any man, any male with a weapon outside the cabin, shoot him immediately. That was their rules of engagement. And nowadays, it's, it's they have, they've changed the rules since this because of this, that's like, unless there's absolutely no other option uh, and it's unreasonable and, it, and you're unable to announce yourself or to tell the person you're going to fire at them, then you're able to fire. But then they're just like, hey, man, if you see any male with a gun, shoot him. And so what happened is the sniper, so there was two people outside. They had killed Randy Weaver's son. He took his son and put him in one of like the little sheds out back that was like one of a, it was like a spare room. So he was out at this little shed and... This sniper goes, click, click, shoots two shots right in succession. And this is the next day, mind you. Uh, he thought that Randy, had a, he had a gun, and he thought that Randy was going to go up and shoot the helicopter that was above. So the bullet went right through Randy's shoulder and through the side of the um, the shed that he had just come out of because he was looking at it. He was just saying goodbye to his son that had died. They had kind of wrapped him up you know, and put him in the, his body in the shed. And actually, what's funny is that his daughter, I saw an interview, and she still has that property. They still have that property today, and she still got that shed, and you can still see where that bullet hole went through that shed, went through his shoulder. Well, obviously, you know, he's in that shoulder, but you can see it's where it went through that shed. So he books it inside, and then his other buddy, uh, Harris, was on the front porch, and he tucked back inside too, and he got shot. The other guy shot him, which... He was just standing there. He shot him, and the bullet went like through his ribs, through his back, through hit his ribs, uh, cracked his ribs, punctured his lung. I think it hit through his arm, maybe some, and and went 
then the bullet continued to go through a window and shot Vicki Weaver, Randy's wife, killed her instantly. She was holding their 18-month-old baby in her hands. And That's his 16-year-old daughter was standing right there when this whole thing happened. And she said, I just felt blood all over my face and the baby just dropped to the ground. And for the next eight days, uh, Harris and Weaver were inside that house. And that their, Harris was shot and badly and Randy Weaver was hurt too because he got shot through the shoulder. So she was trying to attend to them and take care of the kids. Uh, their mom is dead on the floor. And the FBI, they didn't try to negotiate or do anything. They were just coming out shooting. So they were like, if we literally step out of this place, we're going to get killed. So a local civilian named Bo Gritz, who was also a former Green Beret, he's the one that decided to come in and try to do a negotiation. So he actually did a negotiation with Randy uh, to say, hey, let us come in. And uh, and the locals, by the way, the locals during this whole thing, these eight, these 11 days, they're going crazy down with like where the press line is. They're like, Randy's a good guy. He would never hurt anybody. You guys are attacking him. And they send some fellow locals up to the, to the cabin to take his wife's body away. And then uh, Harris... Uh, surrenders and obviously he gets medical attention right away and then it was like three days after that randy and his three daughters uh, walked out uh, and, and surrendered as well because of the negotiation that Bo Gritz did and she just said that when we walked out of that thing she was like every single step we took we were just thought we would get shot every single step and so the fbi took him and they totally botched every single little thing. They went into the crime scene and listen to this little bird from the analysis. They said during and after the crisis, the crime scenes were searched by many law enforcement officials under the direct supervision of the FBI. We found the FBI's handling of the crime scene searches to be inadequate, including its failure to be use basic crime scene techniques in collecting evidence. Furthermore, the general disorganization and experience of some of the participants coupled with the inaccuracies in searches adversely affected the prosecution and contributed to the negative impression of the government's general generated during the trial. We found no evidence that the defect deficiencies were intentional or that the FBI staged evidence to, uh, for the prosecution's benefit. So they oh, just, so they're not, so they're not malicious. They're just incompetent. Well, yeah, that the government is saying that the government is incompetent. So, what happened is that, uh, before I tell you the outcome of everything, there's so much to this. The FBI's lab was just absolutely ridiculous. They were falsifying all the stuff. They were dragging their feet. You know, the defense, so Randy goes to court, right? And they try to charge him all this kind of stuff. They try to charge him for conspiracy charges. They try to charge him for murder charges, for killing that marshal. They actually try to uh, get him the death penalty for all this. And... The when the grand jury said, "Hey, we want to investigate the death of Vicky, his wife," the U.S. attorney lied and told them incorrectly. He lied. He said, "Oh no, that's not within your jurisdiction to do so." And uh, they tried to seek the death penalty for Randy and Kevin, Kevin Harris. Oh, that, his name was Kevin. Uh, and the U.S. attorney's office wanted help. They they wanted help as a prosecution, but also the defense was like, "Hey, we need documents. We need paperwork. They're, we're they're entitled to all this evidence." But the FBI keep dragging their feet, dragging their feet, dragging their feet, delaying, 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 making as many, they made so many mistakes. And so 
when you're explaining all this to the jury, they're like, dude, this FBI is absolutely amateur hour and they're trying to cover up all their mistakes. And so the Weaver, Weaver was charged with multiple crimes, including murder, but the judge dismissed basically all of them. Uh, he dismissed the two counts after the hearing the prosecution um, witness testimony. The jury acquitted Weaver of all remaining charges except two, uh, one of which the judge set aside. He was found guilty of one count of failure to appear, for which he was fined $10,000 and sentenced to 18 months in prison. He was credited with time served and uh, plus an additional three months, and was re- and then he was released. Kevin Harris was acquitted of all crimes and charges. So they were basically said, well, well you're let go. I mean, we just sorry that you didn't appear uh, <laughs> for this bench warrant. Uh, one of the, I think two of the agents, FBI agents were investigated. One of the investigations was dropped on one. Another one, I heard that he actually spent 18 months in jail and then he was let go. And Randy Weaver later sued the government. Uh, he was awarded $100,000 and his, each of his three daughters were awarded a million dollars each. Uh, but interesting, when you hear his daughter talk about it, she's like, that's basically blood money for them, killing my brother and my mom. Uh, so she's still, that oldest daughter that was 16 during that whole thing, she still owns that property to this day, uh, and she still has that little shed out in the backyard, like I mentioned. So what a crazy, you know, example of how the government just absolutely overstepped and these ATF guys. And the whole thing was, this was Lots of people said this is entrapment because that informant was like, hey, you want to make some money? But the government, but the the committee that researched this thing, they said, well, technically that's not entrapment because they didn't encourage to do something that he felt uncomfortable doing. So because there was no evidence of an overt encouragement against his will, it's not entrapment. Well, he might not even have known that sawing off the shotguns was illegal. He's like, okay, you pay me a couple hundred bucks, I'll do this. I mean, sure, why not? But. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I it's can't tell shady, that. And then shady from shady from the beginning. Yeah, then because he would had gone to a couple of these Aryan conferences, you know, they were a lot of things like, oh, this guy's a Nazi, Green Beret, anti-government guy. Let's go kill him, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, and so there was a lot of that going around, but crazy, you know. ATF goes after this guy, kills his kid and his wife, and all over just not appearing for a trial. And well, I think. I think what happens sometimes, and, and we'll kind of see this too with the Waco thing, but I think what happens is you get some of these uh, these agencies or even like these individual agents that they get fixated on something mm-hmm. and they get fixated on this one guy and and kind of probably the overarching goal was to, to Make an arrest. learn more about the, yeah, or I'd say even just the, the, the first goal was to learn more about this, the Aryan Brotherhood or whatever up in the area. Mm, yep. But then they just kind of focused in on this one guy. Because they couldn't find anything else, yeah. Could, yeah, couldn't find anything else. I think a lot of it, and, and I think th- this is, is the case, well, not just in, in, in these government agencies, but I guess in any industry, but people are trying to... Um, they're like, oh, this is my career-winning project. Arrest. This is my career-winning arrest. This is my and so they'll go so far and do so many things that are unethical and everything else. Even if you are a police officer, you know, or or, or uh, an ATF agent or whatever, you'll go above and beyond just to 
prove yourself, to get that promotion, to whatever. I think that's a downfall of some of these agencies because it's just like this guy was completely railroaded. And it was proven in the end by saying, yeah, well, uh, sorry, our bad. I mean, yeah, here's here's uh, $3.1 million of taxpayers' money to help you feel better. Like that that like the daughter said, that's blood money. But at the same point, you know, we should be upset because that's our money that's paying for that stuff. Well, um, I'm not really mad about the money. I mean, I think. Well, no, I'm just I'm just saying, I mean, I think they should be compensated, but in the compensation is fine. I'm just saying it's just a misuse and misrepresentation across the board of like, I don't know. Just the the way it was handled. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I I think that you know the government. I think every single one of those people that was on that property should be lose their job. Should never be ever allowed to be in any law enforcement agency ever again. But then yeah. we have you know what is it? Biden just put up one of these guys who was at Waco. These ATF guys who was at Waco and likely Ruby Ridge too, up as the head of the ATF. These guys yeah. are still around, screwing around. And so, you know, it's like just shocking that this kind of thing happens and that, you know, the guy didn't hardly do anything. And the ATF came up to his house and killed his kill half his family. And they're just like, we're going to kill you over not showing up for your court date. And that's what's going to be. So it's uh, it, it, and it also he was he, they were both acquitted of that murder of that they, of that self-defense of that marshal that was self deemed self-defense. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, that. um the uh the there probably was people that were promoted um from from this incident i mean isn't uh, that crazy to think yeah i i don't know if there are people promoted from this incident because this is a really bad 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 mark on them not just them but the fbi too because the fbi too was majorly involved i mean this is just as bad on the fbi as it is the atf yeah that's true but then that was in 1992 1993, the next year later, that's when Waco happens, right? Tell us about Waco. Yeah, so Waco was crazy. So to to get a little bit more into what happened to Waco. So Ruby Ridge was, what, 1988, 89, 90, 91? I mean, it's kind of all in there, right? Yeah, it culminated in 992, August of 92. Yeah, so Waco was the next year. Um, so, I mean, they're coming off of this one huge thing and then they just go right into another situation. So, uh, a little bit of the background. So this, this happened in Waco, Texas. Um, the, the ATF was involved in a very controversial incident. What happened was there was a standoff between the ATF and the Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidians were a religious group led by a guy named David Koresh. It's Koresh, right? Is that how you say it? Yep. Yeah, I think that's it. So the Branch Davidians were uh, a small apocalyptic sect, let's say, that believed that the coming apocalypse uh, was kind of upon us. And that Koresh was a prophet at that time, and that he was going to be the one that would lead them through the apocalypse. It's kind of, I guess, some of the basis of what they believed. Uh, there were some very questionable 
practices that that were being performed. Um, Wasn't he taking on these guys, like his followers who take their wives uh, yeah, as his own wives? Yeah, he would. He would say, you know, yeah, just some kind of weird stuff with that. And there, there, there were a lot of followers that were very loyal and were very adamant in saying, oh, well, we're following... Uh, David, we're he's the prophet and and everything else, uh, but there was some people after a while that kind of there started to be a little bit of dissension, but we well, we can get into that a little bit later. But what happened was the Branch Davidians in Texas, they part of their apocalyptic pre- preparation was to accumulate uh, firearms and. They were accumulating quite a few firearms, and and for the most part, they were collecting these legally. Um, they weren't illegal drugs or firearms or whatever else. But this caught the eye of the ATF, uh, who had some, uh, whether it was informants or they were tipped off about some large gun purchases, in in that area and so on february 28th 1993 the atf attempted to execute a search warrant on the branch davidians compound in waco so they had built this kind of this massive compound that was this huge standalone building uh, I can't remember how big it was, but it had a you know whole chapel inside of it and had whole living quarters and and it, it was a a big multi-story building uh, that there was quite a few people living in. Almost a hundred people were living in this in this building. So the ATF executed a search warrant, and the warrant was related to these allegations of illegal weapon possession. Well, that was by. Wasn't like straw man purchasing or something like that? Yeah, something like that. One person buying for another person or transfers or uh, they just were kind of looking for any situation where they would have have had illegal weapons. And I think it was kind of fueled as well by some of the rumorings of the this guy with kids weird, weird things they were doing and and. Um, some of their beliefs, and so it, it kind of escalated into into that. So on February 28th, they issued this warrant, and they actually that this raid quickly turned violent, and it went from "Hey, we have a search warrant to look for illegal guns" to basically an all-out shootout between the Branch Davidians and the ATF. In the end, four ATF agents and six Branch Davidians were killed during that shootout. And that was initially just the execution of the search warrant. But didn't the, did the ATF just come up guns blazing, just start shooting up the place? Oh, yeah. They came in, and they they didn't do it kindly. Basically, they came in, started knocking on the door, and then they waited very little time and then just started blowing rounds through the front door. Um, and that's when the, the Branch Davidians started shooting back. And um, If you think the apocalypse is upon us and people start breaking into your compound and shooting you up, 
shoot like, in the front door. That's like yeah. the worst thing you could do to people like that. Yeah. It's just like inciting violence. And this is a common trend. Uh, violence just causes, seeds more violence. And so after that shootout, uh, four ATF agents and six branch civilians died. Obviously, this is now a, a big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> needless to say. So the Branch Davidians basically locked themselves in this big building, this big compound. Um, and a standoff ensued. So this standoff lasted where the the ATF was outside, the Branch Davidians were locked inside of this compound for 51 days. And the Branch Davidians refused to leave the compound and surrender to the the ATF. So, of course, the ATF didn't like this. And so, instead of, let's say, trying to immediately get in and negotiate and de-escalate, 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 well... They just laid in harder. So they cut off all communication. I mean, this was 1993, so like cell phones really weren't a thing. And so they cut off all landlines, cut off all communication with the outside world. And then they started using basically torture tactics to get these people to try to leave. So for the next 51 or the majority of the next 51 days, what they did is they set up, they used several different tactics. I'm going to kind of go through them. So one of the first tactics they used was loud music and voices. So what they did is they set up speakers, just massive speakers all around this compound. And they would just blare music and noises and sounds over these speakers day and night day and night day and night like screaming and loud so some of the things they would they would play would be the um the ride of the valkyries which is uh, kind of like a common song uh we'll, we'll we'll put that song on uh once on our social media so you guys can listen to it really loud over and over again for 51 days straight <laughs> okay. uh, so that instead, was one instead of because they were trying to sleep deprive them that was what they were trying yeah. to do so they did that uh loud music they broadcasted loud voices. They broadcasted the sounds of rabbits being slaughtered. So just like screaming rabbits being slaughtered. And uh, basically what they were trying to wear them down. They're trying to sleep deprive them. They're trying to just break their, undermine their morale completely. So that was the first thing they did. Then they also implemented bright lights. So they brought huge bright lights in and they shined these bright lights in all the windows so that even at night, it was like the lights were so bright that it was like daytime. And so it was throwing everybody off. They couldn't sleep because of the loud noises and the bright lights. Um, next, they got water hoses. Law enforcement would get, they'd bring out fire trucks, get water hoses, and they would just constantly spraying the house and the whole compound with water i don't know if they were trying to well, how, how do they not expect they these people to, to like these people are armed how do they and they're pushing them 
pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, would they not expect these people to just unload on them? I mean, like, was that a, a question? I don't know. I mean, if I was already gotten a gunfight with someone, and then I start using these like torture psychological warfare tactics, how could I not expect someone to just stick their arm out the window and absolutely just mow down as many people as they or like just shoot into the tents or wherever everybody's at? You know. Well, and the thing is, too, is you think who is the person that I want to put, a, you know, have a gun in their hand? Oh, an extremely angry and sleep deprived person yeah that's the person i want to have a gun in their hand yeah. i mean it just doesn't make sense so the last tactic they use is was tear gas so they used tear gas shot tear gas canisters up into the windows whenever they could which just completely wreaked havoc on whoever was inside and and the branch davidians they would block the windows they put blankets over the windows to try to block out the light and they would stay away from the windows. They'd stay kind of in the inner sanctum areas of the compound. So eventually... What, what question? Uh, Is this the ATF yeah, doing this, or was this just the FBI doing this? So this was the... Initially, it was the ATF. So eventually, the FBI showed up, and they took over lead of the standoff. And they tried to start really kind of implementing some negotiation tactics and um, tried to be maybe a little bit more civil and, and tried to do some sort of mediation. But everything was was so kind of messed up from the beginning, from that very first raid where the ATF went in and just guns blazing, everything, it was just soiled from there mm -hmm. and the 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 prophet quote-unquote uh david koresh was he was kind of writing a, a a memoir while he was in there claiming that he was receiving um kind of i guess inspiration from god to the, the things that his people should and shouldn't do and really i think everyone in there was just kind of going crazy but negotiations between the two sides eventually completely broke down and on april 19th so this the the initial warrant was the warrant raid was on february 28th now on april 19th hmm. this 51 days later the atf launched what they what is now called kind of the final assault on the compound and it was an absolute disaster. They kind of went in and started a couple different tactics and they were ramming. Um, they had like a tank and they were kind of ramming the tank into the sides and launching tear gas canisters. And it was a full out military organized raid on this compound well, like the tanks had and, like long pipes on the end of it and they would like ram yep. the pipes into the building and then pump through the, gas the walls through the walls and then pump yep. the gas through the pipes so you have to think too like i said there was uh, about 90 people in this compound women and children and men. i would probably say over half of them were women and children Mm -hmm. um, probably, probably more. Probably more like seventy-five percent of them were women or children. And the tear gas that they're using wasn't it like sarin gas that was like 
banned by the Geneva Convention. You can't even use that in war. Yeah, yeah. It was incredibly, yeah, nasty, nasty stuff. So the assault ended in this just complete disaster. The compound itself actually caught on fire. And the as the compound was burning, uh, people were trying to escape. And, and the thing, the hard thing is, too, is that we don't know the exact details. There is a, an amazing kind of, I guess, we're called a live-action documentary about this. I think it was on Netflix, yeah, right? It's, yeah. called, it's called Waco. Yeah, really, really good. Really good. Um, but some of it, we don't know exactly what happened on the inside because we don't have cameras, you know, we, we, we don't know. And so there are a couple survivors I'll talk about in a sec, a second, but we still don't quite know. In, in the documentary, there was kind of a, a safe room that was on the inside of the, um, compound. It was a big walk-in freezer. Yeah. And they the women and children had gotten during this raid, this final attack, this assault, they had, the women and children had gone inside this massive walk-in freezer. And because of the place caught on fire and some debris and everything got in front of the door of the freezer, there was only one way in and out and they could not get out. And so the entire place, the entire compound burnt to the ground and there was, in the end, 76 people died, including uh, David Koresh. I think he shot himself in the, he, or he had someone shoot him or he shot himself, right? Yeah, I don't have the specific details. I think that was what happened is he, he committed, I think he committed suicide because he wasn't in that part where he burned up or. Yeah. So, seventy-six people died in this this assault, and that's just Branch Davidians. That's not ATF agents. And and then there were nine survivors of the fire, four women and five children. So we, we, they have gotten some information from the survivors, but this this incident i mean this was a very very abbreviated version there is so many details that it's incredible but this incident in waco is so highly controversial and really it sparked a massive national debate about the force that is used by federal law enforcement agencies how much power do they really have and same thing with Ruby Ridge, you know, why can they why can their rules of engagement just be shoot on site, no questions asked, you know, trigger happy, no negotiation tactics at all, no you know, that seems like a complete failure. So the ATF was extremely criticized for the way they handled the situation and the incident itself has had a long-lasting effect on the agency's reputation. At the very beginning, Jared and I said that the ATF's kind of like the, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild, as the saying goes, of the government agencies, as compared to the CIA and the FBI, because they have some of these massive marks on their on their their records. 
So there was a couple things that I will call out as the major failures of the ATF during the Waco. I'm, I don't want to call it an incident. I want to almost massacre. Call it, oh, I almost want to call it a massacre. Right. Yeah. The first one was a lack of proper planning. Uh, the the F the ATF failed to properly plan the initial raid on the compound. They just went in violent shootout shooting through the doors. There was just no plan put in place. And they were heavily criticized just for going out guns blazing uh, initially at the start. Uh, the second one, it kind of relates to that, an excessive use of force. Why was force and violence the first go-to, especially with women and children in this compound? Uh, including, you know, some of those things were the 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 force that was used on these tactics like the loud music and the lights and the water and and cutting off communication those are those are like military torture tactics they were used on these women and children i mean there's babies in there so yeah. i don't know i i uh I, it's 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 hard hard to think about but third one is poor communication the ATF just was not communicating with the people that were in the compound at all. There was very little negotiation. Whenever the FBI got there, they'd kind of start to started to to do something, but the relationship had already been ruined. Lastly, was a lack of transparency. The ATF itself has been accused of, let's say. I don't want to say fabricating some of the details, but there are many questions and inconsistencies about what happened during the incident. Some people believe that the ATF has not been completely forthcoming with some of the things that happened, some of the things that they did and said that they kind of didn't tell the truth about who shot first or... Um, it's just kind of some of these intricate details that matter. Mm-hmm. Or were they the ones that shot first, or were they did who who shot in, in defense of the others? Yeah, so, yeah. Overall, it's seen as a massive failure due to the violence that occurred, the loss of life that occurred, and the long-lasting just negative effect on on the agency's reputation. Not only that, but just kind of the government in general yep uh and and examples like this and ruby ridge where they just completely overstep their boundaries yeah totally and that isn't even talking and these are just two examples from the 90s there's been other examples like the standoff that occurred in i think it was oregon or idaho uh, with uh what was his name bud something are yeah I Bundy mean, Bundy or yeah Bundy T- something Ted Bundy yeah. not not Ted Bundy Ted Bundy's a serial killer but his name was his last name was oh, Bundy yeah, yeah. Uh, Clive and Bundy I think his name was uh, yeah, there was a whole that thing family that, yeah yeah where they they basically these guys were kind of there was this whole standoff thing and then like the ATF just gunned these people down out of their cars and it, I mean it was crazy so you know. <sighs> We're probably going to get put on some kind of government watch list for having this. But, I mean, seriously, it needs to be we're told. Do, we're do, we, hey, we're probably already on that watch probably list. Probably But 
this this is what America is all about, man. And we we got to stand up against this this type of like Chinese tyranny that that you know we see all the time in these other countries. Uh, this just can't fly in America. And so this type of stuff where these agencies have these cowboys out here just shooting people left and right, this is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. And I don't know. It's important to stand up against that. And this kind of stuff is not gone and done with. We're seeing it today. Every single Twitter file drop that comes out, we see again and again and again. Oh, the the White House was telling telling uh, Twitter to repress these certain people's accounts. Oh, the the Congress. They weren't only telling them; they were paying them oh, money. Yeah. The FBI paid that Twitter three million dollars. To cancel people, silence people's accounts, Twitter accounts about coronavirus, about January sixth, about all this stuff. Um, yeah, man, it's just unbelievable. A congressman you know where, who is being criticized, you know, he goes in and says, "Hey, you need to cancel any mentions of you know this committee on Twitter. Cancel it right now. Like, don't let it go." You know where you need to look. You need to look at if if you're trying to find a fire. You need to look at where everyone's shooting the fire extinguishers, not you know the 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 distraction over here of the the belly dancer trying to distract you about what's going on. You need to you know that was a weird analogy, but it's just like where where, where everyone is trying to uh, say, oh you you know you don't see anything, you don't see anything. Where everything is trying to get hi- hidden, that's that that that's just like a proof that. There's something there. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Yeah, seriously. The Wizard of Oz. Uh, yeah, so crazy. We're still living in this time. I, w- I would say that with coronavirus, and especially with this January 6th thing, man, it's. I would say it's even worse today than it was even back then. I mean, with the amount of government, like, corruption and... You know, especially they would go to the FBI, would go to uh, Instagram and the, or Twitter. They would say, hey, you know, we can't officially tell you to cancel these people's things. That would be an infringement on their First Amendment rights. But we can tell you to cancel them based off of your own policy. So wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is uh, hate speech. <laughs> yeah. Um. So lastly, I wanted to say about the ATF and the ATF is kind of a weird one, too, because because they are specific to. Uh, uh, firearms, mm-hmm. they kind of have some weird powers to be able to determine or, or let's say interpret firearms as it ap- applies to laws. So the ATF doesn't create laws. I guess Congress is really the one that creates these laws and changes laws. But the ATF has the power to interpret firearms. So they've kind of done some really weird things, and and it's kind of hard to get into and explain all of them, but I I kind of have two that stand out. So one is initially the – whenever I say the word machine gun, Jared, what – how would you define a machine gun? Anything that looks menacing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, no, no, yeah. Any gun that has that has is is black. Yeah, any gun that is black is that's yeah. what the Congress says. Or any gun that has you know the thing that that you push you know uh, a muzzle a, a muzzle the shoulder thing that goes up. You know what the, what the Congresswoman say? You know a muzzle break is the shoulder thing that goes up that makes it fully yeah. automatic. <laughs> yeah, 
Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's I, I was gonna we should probably do a whole other episode <laughs> on like p- political blunders and complete uh, misunderstanding of of fully semi-automatic weapons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, machine gun previously in in the the world of uh, that everyone knows, right? I say everyone loosely. A machine gun is a firearm that when you pull the trigger and you hold the trigger down, the bullets don't stop coming out until you <laughs> run out of bullets. Right. So I'm trying to say it as uh, simply as possible. <laughs> it's a fully automatic. You pull the trigger one time, and if you have 30 rounds in your magazine, it's going to shoot all 30 rounds. As long as you one trigger. As long as you hold that l- trigger down. As long as you hold the trigger down, it will keep firing. Boom, 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 boom. Right. Mm-hmm. So a and that's a fully automatic weapon. Mm-hmm. Right. A semi-automatic weapon is a firearm that is one trigger pull equals one bullet. You pull the trigger and that's one boom. Mm-hmm. Then you let go of the trigger and you have to pull the trigger again. That's another boom. That's semi-automatic. Does a binary tri- be? Oh, go ahead. The, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's too complex. Binary triggers because there's there are triggers that the binary trigger where if you pull it back it yeah, fires and if you let it go it fires as well. So it's like somewhere in yeah. between fully auto and well, it's not fully auto because yeah. it's just two fires, so, one one. Yeah. So that's semi-automatic is one trigger pull, one one boom. Yeah. Most most pistols are going to be semi-automatic. Almost all pistols are going to be semi-automatic. Um, and then even your traditional AR-15s, the the weapons of mass destruction, the weapons of war that everyone's talking about and they're all in the news, those are not the same guns that these guys in the military are carrying around. They might look the same, but they are not. They do not have the same functionality. Um, the ones that we have, and I, I say we as in everyone around, right, that has one. Um, <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, lost it in a boat accident, boating accident. Um, it, they're semi-automatic, and it's one one bullet per trigger pull. So what happened was, and there is a a thing that you can do that's called bump firing, a, a semi-automatic gun. Mm-hmm. And if you hold it just right, basically you can use the recoil of the weapon to make your trigger pull happen faster. So every time you pull the trigger, you know, you pull it, boom, pull it, boom, pull it, boom, pull it, boom. If you can bump fire a weapon, then it's kind of like boom, 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 boom. It's still pulling the trigger every time but it uses the recoil of the weapon to help speed up a little bit that process. Mm-hmm. So there was these things that were invented that were called bump stocks. And it was a special uh, stock that you could, like a, the stock is the shoulder part of the weapon that you could put on a semi-automatic rifle that would assist you in... I guess pulling the trigger faster, mm-hmm. um, and it they say that it simulates 
I say that's air quotes simulates um, automatic fire. And so it's not it's it might simulate it, but it still is on a weapon that you have to pull the trigger one time for every bullet, which is a semi-automatic gun. Well, the ATF came out in 2018 after the incident in vegas where there was the shooting at that concert that's a whole other episode we should do on that thing yeah the the guy had on several of his weapons he had bump stocks and so the atf came out and they can't just write a law that says that um bump stocks are illegal but what they can do is they reinterpreted and redefined what is classified as a machine gun oh really so they basically just reclassified a machine gun as a how we defined it earlier but they added on to it any device that makes your weapon fire that in a in a way that mimics a machine gun and so it's just like well if you can just change the definition of what we're looking at, then then who's to say that it doesn't just keep changing, 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 changing? Mm-hmm. And then they end up just saying, oh, anything that looks like a gun is a machine gun. Yeah. Which is just like, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's just one example. There's another one uh, about pistol braces that is kind of, interesting but the, the thing is and I, i'm gonna go back to the bump stocks real quick is that they made that this this interpretation now made bump stocks illegal well there are thousands of people in the united states tens of thousands probably that have bump stocks that purchased them legally before they fit this definition of a machine gun and so now as of march 2019 it is, uh, it, it made it illegal to manufacture, import, possess, sell, or transfer bump stocks. So anyone out there that has a bump stock right now, you're a felon. Crazy. And they want to do things like that for, I, I, I'm doing a lot of air quotes here high capacity magazines right any magazine that can go on a firearm that has more than 10 rounds yeah they want to make that they want to make that illegal so you're like instantly going to make probably millions of people around the whole united states instantly if that came out felons mm-hmm. so and then, it, and then, and then they just it doesn't matter what you do if they disagree with you hey this guy we disagree with what he's saying he's saying something that's that we don't like on Twitter, let's send the ATF to his house. And I'm sure he's got probably a 10 round mag at his house. Boom. Arrested. That's how they got, you know, it doesn't matter what it needs to be. It's just, everybody's a criminal now. And they just, all have to do is have a reason just to not like you. And then they'll go into you. Cause you're, cause maybe you're calling out something, some corruption. Maybe you're calling out something they don't like. We've seen this with the Twitter files. And then they come to your house and say, Hey, uh, you're a felon because we now find a a 10 round mag uh, that is now illegal, and you're actually a thirty a thirty round mag. A thirty round mag that's illegal, and you're you're a criminal now. Yeah. So it, it, that seems 
like a lot of power. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what what regulatory body regulates the ATF and what they do. I hope. Isn't it? Isn't it weird that Department of Justice? It just seems like, and then Congress, well, yeah, I would imagine, I guess, is oversight over that. I guess that's true, and maybe this is just me. Maybe this is a different conversation, but to me, for some reason, it just seems like all of the heads of these organizations are super liberal. Yeah. Well, and they're usually even, put in even, by these. But even when Trump was president, I felt like it was like they they were constantly going back and forth with the FBI and and issues and and kind of these liberal people that are leading all of these organizations that don't even particularly understand half the stuff that the ATF does or stands for. I, I, I don't know. Well, dude, the, F- the FBI has been so corrupt recently, it's unbelievable. Like, you look at these dossiers that they fabricated. I mean, you look at... I mean, we could talk for hours about how corrupt the FBI is frequently. I, I, I In my mind, the FBI has absolutely no credibility anymore. I mean, they're so yeah. politically motivated... And so many things that it's like they're just out for one agenda or one agenda, basically. And But even, I mean, to say like, oh, why is this happening when Trump's in office? I think that's a little, it's assuming too much that Trump was such a good guy. Whereas I think Trump was, he, I mean, I think there was a lot of good things that happened under, the, under Trump. Uh, I think it, it was much better than it is now, but I think he's, I mean... Well, I'm not even. I'm not even. Other side, like, other wing of the bird, you know. Yeah, and I'm not even saying that he was such a good guy, and that it was even like morally. I'm just saying, like, well, not even that. What, what about more like conservative type laws? Yeah. It just seems like the the federal government, the more powerful it gets, it's just the more they're trying to regulate yep. freedoms, like the Second Amendment. Yep. Um, and there's just all these different options for them to to be able to to get you on something. Yeah. So get you. Be, be careful. Get you, Beware. The ATF will get you, or the IRS and their new eighty thousand agents will get you. Or the, some, oh no no something. no the, no the, they're not gonna they're not gonna be looking at anyone that makes less than four hundred thousand dollars. Oh sure, that's sure, what Biden sure. said. Yeah right. Yeah right. Um. Yeah, man, they they got an army of people. So you're already basically a criminal. I mean, who out there is actually doing their taxes 100% correctly? I would venture to say nobody. So you're on the government's bad list, and all you got to do is say something that they don't like, and then you're going to be square. Uh, you know, they 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 already have they already have everything they need against you. They just have to come up into your house, and we we suspect that he might have guns in his house. Pull the warrant. Done. So, needless to say, keep your eyes sharp. Wanna, keep your yeah. eyes sharp and uh, protect yourselves and speak up against this kind of stuff. That's what we're trying to do in this podcast. Is yeah, this is not the sure. this is not the America that we want. Uh, this is you know these incidents are, are are extreme examples, but we're seeing it now too. Uh, we're, we're, this stuff hasn't stopped. We're seeing it now uh, with this corruption and this lying and this targeting and all this kind of stuff so fight against this i uh, think and i think one way to fight against it is to educate yourself yep um educate yourself on uh number one maybe history mm-hmm. things like things like this but, but as well kind of what's happening currently 
what's going on? What's the political environment look like? What's, uh, you know, and, and you don't have to get into it so much and become a, a, a crazy political enthusiast. But uh, I think it's important and part of building your creed is to be aware of what's going on in the country, in the economy, in the neighborhood, in the community, in your state. Yep. Because even unlike what I think with Ruby Ridge and even maybe to some extent this Waco thing, even those people that wanted to be left alone by society, the government like with Randy Weaver moved his family into a cabin in the middle of a 20 acre land in the middle of Idaho. The government still came after him and killed his family. And so whether you like it or not, you should be aware of what's going on uh, and and fight for justice, fight for freedom, fight for truth, uh, fight against, you know, these tyrannical injustices that are being carried out by some of these uh, federal agencies. Yeah, I completely agree. So hopefully you've, uh, Learned received something. some learn something from this hopefully uh it's it's not all doom and gloom but uh i think that there is definitely positive things that we can take out of this mm. uh, positive things for our own life that we can use to learn to grow to teach our own children you know the future generations that will be eventually taking over these these things yeah uh you know w- w- what can we teach them Exactly. So I invite all of you to do these things, to teach and to learn and to be an influential part of your own community. And we invite you to build your creed with us as we build our creeds together. All right, let's do it.